Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Remote Control, the Brightest TV podcast. I'm Deborah Burnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking to Juliana Margulies, who's making her return to television with Dietland on AMC. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Burnbaum, and it's my pleasure to welcome Juliana Margulies. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. So, congratulations on Dialand. Thank you. What made you choose the part? Just start from the beginning. I will start from the beginning. Um, well, they sent me, first of all, you know, I come from 22 episodes a year of network television, and I had finished seven years of it, and I was depleted, completely sure. exhausted. And I thought, I'm just going to take a year off. And after the year, um, Marty Noxon sent me not one script, but five. Wow. Which, in my you never world, get that. no, there's nothing. I mean, I would get scripts two hours before we were shooting them. Um, and I got to hunker down and read five of these scripts, and I was just taken by the subject matter. I was taken by the character. I thought, who's ever going to offer me this role? Because the role of Kitty Montgomery, she's such a bitch, and <laughs> she's. Um, I, I, she has no moral center. She's, I sort of consider her a little bit like Trump in that she just wants to win, um, whether it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, she likes to believe her own hype. And um, she's a little better than Trump, but, but, but in that way, she's just a narcissist. Yes, completely um, unself-aware. Completely unself-aware and truly believes that she's doing um, what should be done. Uh, but has no no consciousness in terms of what another person is feeling. There's no empathy mm-hmm. at all, except for herself. Right. Um, and I thought, in what world would I ever be offered this? Not in the film world, for sure. Um, and so I met with Marty, and I I said, why why did you think of me for this role? And she said, I want to see you do something different. Wow. And I think you'd be great. And I I asked for what the time commitment was because that was important to me. Um, I have a few other irons in the fire, so I wanted to make sure I could um, um, keep my promise to those commitments. And they said you can work two days an episode and, um, you know, make this character what you want it to be. And I jumped at the chance. Creatively, it was just such a different kind of experience and um, really fun. I never I always play the girl with the heart on the sleeve and um, I, I mean I, I do miss Alicia Florick I have to say. I still miss Carol Hathaway but you this, both. <laughs> this was so far away from who they um, are and I thought if I'm going to venture back into television I should do it slowly and I, I truly didn't want to take on um, a show on my shoulders again. I needed a break. It's a lot. Definitely. 
Did you read the book that it was based on? Once I committed to the series, I did read the book. Um, and and truthfully, uh, I, I, the subject matter is so important. I don't think there's ever been a kind of story like this where you see the world through an obese person's eyes and how the world looks at her and how she views the world. Mm-hmm. This constant fear of what people are thinking. I mean, it makes me just so sad to think of what pain it must be to wake up every day. And um, I, I think that the the book was good. I think what Marty was able to do and the other writers were able to do with the series is that they expanded a little wider. You know, the book the book has to end. And with, this, with a, at least a 10-episode series, you get to really explore her feelings um, and the people around her. And with this backdrop of this vigilante movement where women have just had enough and women are fed up and they're taking the law into their own hands. And that's also a moral dilemma because as someone who was viewing it, reading it, I thought, well, okay, that's wrong. And yet I get it. Right. I get it. We're done. Mm-hmm. Um so it was exciting. It was exciting to read the book, but it was more exciting to do the show, to be honest with you. That's great. You rarely yeah. hear that. How did you work with Marty and the writers to make Kitty not just one note? To your point, like she's not very surf- you know, she's kind of surface deep, but you bring a lot to the character as well. Well, we talked about that because um, she is written, especially in the book, as a caricature. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't really know people like her. I, I wouldn't want to know someone like her. She's, Hopefully not. Just, um, she's she's deplorable. Um, and so I said to Marty, the only way I could do this is if you let me play her as natural as possible in order to make her believable. And what was fun about it, the lines, I mean, I feel selfish because truthfully, I get the best lines. You really do get some great lines. I get the best clothes. And I have the best schedule. It's like, I feel like I finally arrived, to be honest. <laughs> I think you earned it. I think you put in your time. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I, I, I feel, you know, I would come to set every day and I would say to Joy, I know what you're going through. Because she's in every scene and she, she's got a lot, you know, in the, the line, there's a lot of talking. And I said, what, I'll never just give advice because who am I? But just as someone who's gone through this for 20 years, please know that you can ask me any questions you have. And it was really sweet. She would, some days she would say, I just, I'm so tired. I said, right, okay, so you have to learn the 20, the 20 minute nap rule. No more than 20 minutes or it's too much. No less than 20 minutes, it's not enough. You have to learn to keep your energy up with eating brain food. I mean, I learned all this through the, you know, through pain and <laughs> suffering. Um, There's a lot of experience that went into those yeah. lessons. So it was really nice to sort of handhold this. She's such an ingenue. This girl is so talented. She really is a raw talent. I think she's going to be such a spokesmodel for women, young girls, all women of all ages mm-hmm. going through something. She's so natural. Um, doing scenes with her was really um, a joy for me, no pun intended, being that her name is Joy Nash. Um, but but I, I could see, and she was, you know, someone like her, she was so appreciative. Who's going to offer her a role like this? Right. It's a role of a lifetime. And I was so happy to be on 
on the train with her, you know, to just guide her through moments of exhaustion and and um, but she's young and she's excited and it was fun to be around that kind of energy. That's wonderful. And to be around someone who was just so grateful to have the job. You know, if you do this enough and you see people walking onto a set who aren't grateful to be doing to be able to act and get paid for it and do what you love to do. A lot of people uh, don't realize that most people go to work and hate their job. Mm-hmm. So to see and be around that energy and be around Marty and all our producers, Maria and Julie and all these women that were so happy to be there. And that was the other thing. I mean, I'm not, I I love men. I married a man. I bore a man into this world. So (laughs) I'm not a man basher, but our DP was a woman, Allison, our first AD. I'd never worked with a first AD who was a woman, a a DP who was a woman. With all the jobs you had? Not once. Not once. And it was such a different environment. Mm -hmm. It was... And also, I've worked with wonderful women, but women who grew up in the business always having to prove themselves to men. So they were a little tough. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, I mean, this set was... There was such a genuine warmth and ease and calm. Um, It It makes a a difference. It makes a big difference, you know? Even... I had a moment where everyone uh, in New York, anyway, I don't know about uh, the rest of the country, but we were all getting sick. And my, you know, I'm, I have a 10 year old, so he came home with this stomach bug, and next thing my husband had it. And just after I finished taking care of them, I got it, and I had to be at work the next day. And it was the first job I've ever had where I called in and I said, I have 102, um, I'm vomiting, <laughs> I can rally, but I'm just letting you know that it's not going to be pretty. And they said, don't come to work, please. Thank you. We're going to rearrange the schedule. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll be good by Friday. And they were like, you know what? Come in Monday. Usually when that would happen to me, there was a doctor in my bedroom shooting me up with steroids and whatever to get just to prop me up so I could get to work to finish the. And when I, I was so shocked at the response from everyone who worked there I kept writing thank you emails from my (laughs) sick bed and they said are you kidding we all have kids we all know we don't want you on the set you're going to get everyone else sick you know if they it's that kind of brain where it's not you got a man through it it's no actually let's have a healthy set Mm -hmm. and so it was my first experience just it was just joyful throughout the whole thing and that's so relevant right now and when there's all this conversation about parody and the lack thereof to see a set like that, to see that that's how the show is produced, it's important. It's important. It makes the work better. It makes the energy better. Um, and it and it's a very respectful way to live your life. And also to make a show. I mean, yeah. I think that's also reflected in you know what you're trying to do. Like, you're right, it's a job. But I think it's also important for representation. I mean, I keep saying this, representation matters. But it just does to be able matter. To, you know, to be able to see, for you to be on a set and see a woman DP and a woman, you know, AD, like, yeah. that's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's it's good for, you know, my son to hear about it. Yes. And and to uh, for him to understand that women work just like men. And we we do we can do their jobs too. We all can do it together, exactly. copacetically, you know. And it shouldn't be an us versus them thing. It just should be a cooperation thing. Yeah. Everyone has something to bring to the table. Right. But we can't isolate one gender in favor of the other. Right. And it shouldn't be a fight. 
No, exactly. Um, I feel like we got, sort of got ahead of it. We never really talked okay. about the plot of the show. Oh, well, let's talk about the plot. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. So, no, it's fine. It's like, I, you know, these are all things I wanted to talk about. But explain what sort of happens in the show and how your character interacts with Joy for people who may not know the book. So, my character is the editor of a uh, fashion magazine for teens, young adults, girls. And um, she has taken this company, um, Austin Media, this magazine, Daisy Chain, that she's the editor of, was flailing, and she has made it the number one magazine in the country. So she is, she's got some um, real pride, and she feels like she, they owe everything to her. Now, she's also someone who <clears throat> judges everyone by how they look. And she, in her mind, is perfect. She has the perfect red hair and the perfect body and perfect skin. And she is battling the fact that she's aging um, with everything in the book, from collagen protein drinks to every cream you can imagine. Her girls, she calls them her girls, are her readers who write letters to Kitty, Dear Kitty Letters. She hires Joy Nash's character, who is um, called Plum Kettle in the show, to answer these girls because she wouldn't understand their problems. Mm -hmm. But Joy Kettle, Plum Kettle, would because she's flawed. So she hires uh, uh, Plum Kettle to write her letters to her girls, and she brings her in sporadically to hear how her girls are doing. How are my girls? She's very proud of the fact that they are her girls. Um, And also she's smart enough to know that Plum is the exact person who should be writing these letters. So Kitty's very smart. She's not dumb. She's just a narcissist to the umph degree. Um, And while this is all going on, while you sort of go into this world of Austin media, and one of the things that I don't know if many people know about the the magazine world, especially something like Austin Media, which is really Hearst, you know, it's any one of these huge magazine um, companies, they have what's called a beauty closet, and that's a real character in our show. The beauty closet is remarkable. <laughs> you open this door, and every product you could ever wish for is in it. Having worked at many magazines, I can attest it's a real thing. It's, it's writing, a real thing. And, it's, and there's also a fashion closet. There's I a fashion had no idea. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> I mean, it's like I was a kid in a candy store the first day. I was like, wait a minute. I mean, every product you could imagine. Um, and it's, they need one person um, who's played by Tamara Tooney. She plays Julia, who manages the beauty closet. She is um, the queen of the beauty closet. And Kitty, when Kitty's having a rough day, Kitty will go down to the beauty closet to um, just find something that'll make her skin more dewy and something that'll make her prettier. Um, someone asked me the other day, why is Kitty such a bitch? And I said, well, she's always hungry. <laughs> I'll do it. You know? yeah, uh, I don't think Kitty eats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, of course. I know when, I, when I'm hungry, I'm horrible. Um, so uh, the backdrop is that there's this vigilante movement happening by what they call a terrorist group called Jennifer. And white privileged men accused of rape but not convicted start literally falling out of the sky dead and when the autopsies happen there's always a note in their mouth and it just says Jennifer on it and there is a manifesto that's written by Jennifer 
of the rules of law for Jennifer, basically. And um, Plum gets caught up in this movement. Kitty is opposed to it at first until she realizes that the letters that Plum is getting for Kitty are these young girls who are excited by this movement. So Kitty then dives into the world of this manifesto and actually publishes it on the cover of Daisy Chain magazine. Wow. And it sells like hotcakes, and it becomes this incredible movement. But it backfires when Jennifer goes too far. I shouldn't give the rest away because that's sort of episode 9 and 10. But it backfires, and then she has to deal with the repercussions of that, and she gets demoted. <gasps> Devastating for Kitty. Devastating mm. for Kitty. Um, uh, what, what's, what was really interesting about playing this character is she, she's a woman who has a lot of power, yet when she walks into the boardroom, it's all white men over 60. And um, she is belittled, belittled constantly until she calls their bluff mm. and starts finding out things about them that she can hold over their heads. Um, so she climbs back up pretty quick. Don't you worry about Kitty. I will never She's worry. resourceful. I will never worry about Kitty. Do <laughs> <laughs> not worry about Kitty, yeah. So at around episode um, nine, she changes her hair part. And that was very deliberate. And she starts wearing pants. Um, and it's not about... They're, they're still gorgeous, fitted, tailored, crazy uh, Gucci suits and God knows what. But she starts wearing the pants in the boardroom. And you see that. You see the dynamics change. Um, and it's, you know, who knows where it'll go next season, if there is a next season. But I hope there is, just because I'm always fascinated. I mean, the it's lines so I get to say, it's it's so rich. And it's also so timely. I mean, I know TV shows are, you know, long in production, and long in development, take a while to get to the screen. But you couldn't be coming out at a better moment right now for all of the issues you just talked about. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the At Me Too movement hadn't really started when I read the script in early August, it was just, um, it was October when that all happened. And we, we were about to start filming when the Harvey Weinstein story broke. So, um, and the book was written in 2014. Um, we were, so originally I, my understanding was that we were going to air in September but they pushed everything up. <laughs> and rightfully so. I sure. mean, Strike While the Iron's Hot, this is such a timely piece. We had no idea. It was um, timely when I read it in that Trump was president and women, just the misogyny that's coming out of the White House and um, the racism and the, the ineptitude is uh, mind-boggling. Um, so it definitely was timely in and of itself. But then when the At Me Too movement started, we all realized we had we had it in, in the back and we needed to let it out sooner than later. Do you think Kitty's a feminist? Kitty thinks she's a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she has a line. She, she um, There was a line that I got to say, which I found so... Um, Right on. She's very honest. Mm -hmm. And she says to Plum, um, I had to suck a lot of dick to get to where I am. But that was a picnic compared to the assholes I had to cater to when all the time I was smarter and better at the job. 
And I think there isn't going to be a woman in business mm-hmm. that isn't going to understand that statement. I mean, I get the richest lines. It's crazy. <laughs> but it's true. It's like, that was nothing compared to pretending I was stupid and bringing coffee to schmucks when I knew exactly how to fix the problem. But you stay quiet and you keep your place and you just nod and smile and then you wait and then you go in for the attack. <laughs> and that was sort of Kitty's, that was what she did. Is that how, I mean, I know, you, you know, it's like the classic network note that every character has to be likable. The joy of Cable is that they don't have to be and Kitty is by no means likable. But she is relatable in that sense and the struggles that she had to deal with. Is that something that you were trying to like find for her so that you had a way in? Well, it's there's an honesty to her that's so refreshing. Um, I, I, I was not worried. Um, a, as someone who was able to finally just take the back seat, mm-hmm. um, my character doesn't really have to be likable. Joy's character needs to be likable. You need to, you need to have empathy for her. Um, and you rightfully do just by, by who she is and how she acts. But um, I wasn't concerned with Kitty being likable. And I think because she's so honest, you can't help but love her because she's crazy and in, in a sort of delicious way. And as you, um, that's Marty's word for Kitty, delicious. Um, as you Good unpeel word. these layers of her and you start realizing what you went through to get to where she is, she becomes more likable. But I'm not worried about her being likable. I don't care if people like her or not. Which is really fun to play. And change of pace for you. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, I mean, the, you know, the fun, the fun part for me is um, my son always loves to help me learn lines. Unfortunately, there's some lines in this show I can't let him. They're inappropriate for a 10-year-old. Um, but he was helping me one, one night. And I had this great monologue um, which talks about one of her mentors, what her mentor taught her. Um, about a, a Buddhist monk and his disciple. I mean, she's deep. You'll find, like, as you dig, start digging up. But about her Buddhist monk, this Buddhist monk and his disciple, and the Buddhist monk gives the disciple a live duck in a glass bottle and goes away. And the disciple is just stuck and in despair because he can't figure out how to get the duck out of the glass bottle without killing the duck. Mm-hmm. And the monk comes back and sees that the duck is still in the bottle and the disciple wants to kill himself and the monk goes away and he comes back and the third time the disciple is dancing and singing and full of joy and he's happy and the monk looks and the duck is still inside the bottle and he says what did you learn my son and the disciple says not my duck not my bottle (laughs) and that's kind of kitty you know And it's such, and it's actually become sort of a phrase in our household. (laughs) You know, it's like, why are we getting into everyone's bottle? It's not my duck. It's not my bottle. So you know what? I'm just going to go over here. (laughs) And there's sort of this freedom in that. Yes. You know, Um, great lines, just beautifully written. Were a lot of those lifted from the book, or that's what Marty brought to the table? That's what Marty brought to the table. I actually did ask her about that, and and I, I, it was such a delicious monologue to do. Um, and she could tell I was just um, loving the words and sort of they were just dripping out of my mouth that she actually ended up putting it um, further down in the in the next episode 
where so I tell Dominic, the private investigator, when he says, "Don't you want me to go after someone?" And I say, "I say, not my duck, not my bottle." He then uses it, so it's sort of become a little mantra on set, um, which is really fun. Um, but it's gone far. I mean, my I told my sister Rachel. Um, the monologue and she'll text me she's like I have gotten so much mileage out of not my duck not my bottle I'm stealing it it's gonna <laughs> yeah. be my new mantra yeah, so Marty told me that it was actually Barbara Hall who she used to work with mm-hmm. that told her about that story and so she so I guess it's been around for a while but hopefully now it's regurgitating and people will use it again <laughs> find it. some calmness in it maybe we're bringing it back yeah once you, once you got past those five episodes, how closely did you work with Marty on what you wanted to see for Kitty? Or was it just hear the words on the page and you were happy? I just let her run with it. I said, you know, I trust you. Um, there's There's been... Uh, I don't think there was one day where I said, could we do this or that? I, I really am amazed that I just... Uh, I do what's on the written page. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those actors. I really... Uh, I really try to respect the writing, and I will always um, try what is written on the page. If it doesn't work on the day, we'll see it and hear it, you know. And if you're with any writer that's that's good, they will see it and hear it too. Um, I did that with with Robert and Michelle King. I never. I always said, "Let me try it how it's written, and, and if it doesn't sound right, we'll try something else." But um, you know. I did a little stint on The Sopranos, and I remember having this with David Chase. There, every if and and but <clears throat> is sort of like Pinter, where it, every comma is there for a reason. I look at that as only that just benefits the actor. You don't have to think about the writing. You can actually just trust it and then act it. That's your job. Um, I've been very lucky to work with great writers. I was going to say, you've yeah. got a great track record of great <clears throat> writers. Um, but I do remember one night, I was working with Michael Imperioli, and it was late at night, and we were in a diner, and I thought, and it was his close-up, and I thought he, it was just, I mean, he hit it out of the park. It was so great. And the script supervisor came over to him and said, oh, you said, I forget what it was, like an if, but it was that minute, you know, an if instead of an of or an and instead of a the or whatever. And I was wait. I just sat back watching, you know, because I was a guest star. It wasn't my duck, not my bottle. So, and his reaction was remarkable, and it taught me so much. He went, "Oh, of course, that's so much better. Thank you." And that's how they were on The Sopranos. All those actors, Edie and James, and all of them. And I was so floored by that reaction rather than him saying, fuck you. You know, I got, that was the best, you know. He just said, thank you. You're right. So much better. And I just took a mental note of it and thought, that's how I want to approach my work. Mm-hmm. I want to work with writers I can trust that when I mess up a line, I see that it's so much better the way it was written. And it's not always going to be that way, but it's, that's where respect. If you act with with um, that kind of a attitude towards the writing, they will always write for you mm-hmm. rather than against you. You know, it's it's a team effort. So, what makes you choose a role? What makes you decide to take on a given project? Well, I like to. I like you know. It for me, I have to believe what I'm reading 
I have to sort of internalize it and think, can I make this sound real? And can I somehow connect with the character? Um, there's not a lot of me in Kitty, but I really connect with um, with what she's trying to do. And I love it. It's just, you know, it's satire, what mm-hmm. we're doing. So um, when I pick a role, so I there's a, a, a film I'm actually going to be doing with Michael Imperioli this summer um, about a Syrian Jew undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer and this Syrian Jewish community. And I immediately could see her in my... If I can see her when I'm reading her um, and not see anything but the character, then I connect to it and I want to do it. Um, My favorite thing to do is try and challenge myself. Um, Usually when I get a character... Like with Kitty, I was very nervous, to be honest with you. I I thought, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to make her um, believable... And also funny, and also real, mm-hmm. because this is satire. I mean, if anyone takes this too seriously, they're nuts. You know, <laughs> like you know, this is entertainment. So, how do you strike that right tone? How do you make sure that that it comes across so it's it you know people understand what you're trying to do? Yeah. Well, with Kitty, I I really had to um, play her more naturally because there's some big lines. And then sometimes I had to respect that the lines were really big and go there, you know. So it was a, a delicate balance of figuring out um, the outcome. Uh, I never, I'm just not one of those actors who decides how it's going to be done while I'm learning lines at home, because then you're icing out the actor who's opposite you, because mm-hmm. acting is reacting, right? So I don't know how you're going to respond to my line, and I have to stay open and available to have a natural reaction Otherwise, you've just cut off the other person. So um, what I love to do is, especially with Kitty, because I, I have some pretty long monologues, was I love to learn the lines inside out so that I can say them in my sleep. And then when I get to set, just let it sit and see how the person's going to respond to it. And certain things came out which were really fun. Um, also because Marty just lets you play. Um, just this this uh, sincerity that she has, I discovered as we were going, and this sort of when she says thank you, I just one day, um, Joy and I were doing a scene, and and she brings me the manifesto and tells me that the girls the girls are writing in about the manifesto, and I and she says wow thank you Kitty, and I I put my hands together sort of in this Buddha, and this was before the Buddha monologue, I didn't know that, that was coming down the pike, really, and I said. No, thank you, Plum. And I sort of put my hands together in prayer position. But I did it just because it came out. And that then became what Marty started writing. And, you know, in the script you'll see, and Kitty puts her hands together and and bows. And it's become a Kitty thing. But it came naturally, you know, Mm -hmm. out of the material, out of the writing, and out of the scene with her. And the way she said thank you to me... I said, no, thank you. You know, it was just one of those. So that's what's so fun about um, allowing, if you have the the tools, you don't have to seal up your performance before you get to the set. You shouldn't. 
you should stay open to the other actor. And then it becomes real, even if it's completely off the rails, right? Even if it's just nutty. She truly commits to that. Um, and that's what makes it so fun. What about Kitty's look? I mean, she's got a very distinctive look. You mentioned the red hair, the red <laughs> lipstick, the fashion, the, you know. It's very, um, it's very extreme, yeah. but it's very distinctive. Was that something you worked with a makeup and hair team on? Yeah, so um, Katie Riley is our costume designer and just so much fun. Um, and the truth is the budget for the costume department sort of went, I feel guilty saying this, but it went all to Kitty. Not intentionally, it's just that we were playing it truthfully where plum shops at Kmart, right? There, she, she, there are no clothes for her there's you know everything is uh h&m you know not that that's bad it's good but but so the budget was cheap for the lead character Mm -hmm. which allowed kitty to wear crazy things i mean in in the last episode i'm wearing a ridiculously expensive stella mccartney cape that has a sunset embroidered on the back (laughs) that marty saw in one of our fittings and wrote it into the Mm -hmm. scene she wanted to see it Everything is I've arrived. It's all the clothes. I actually, I would say, who wears this stuff? I mean, I would never wear this stuff. And, um, (laughs) you know, my makeup artist, I was in this crazy Gucci outfit with bizarre things all over it. And my makeup artist had gone to some club and she said, in the bathroom, the girl was washing her hands. She had on my coat Kitty had been wearing. Um, Just over the top, high, high, high end fashion that regular people don't know about and some you know you look at it and you go oh my god where'd they get that from and you realize it's Alexander McQueen and it costs eight thousand dollars you know I'm just someone who would rather buy a coffee table than have an article of clothing I'll wear once but that's just me um so she is in high fashion and she feels she has to look a certain way in order to represent the magazine that she has brought from the ashes um and she's very into her clothing and she's very into her size um, and she talks about it, how hard it is that at the age of 50, um, there's certain things you have to attack, like your waistline, um, to stay under a size two. You know, she's very, and she's saying it to Plum. It's horrible. I it's mean, when horrible. You think about the things that she says to Plum. Without, she, and she truly, I believe, does not for a minute think she's insulting Plum. No. I love the line when she walks in, she's like, I always forget, pause, what beautiful eyes you have. Right. Devastating. Devastating. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. But I had to say that with as much realism as I could, you know, because Mm -hmm. otherwise it becomes dynasty, you know, like with this sort of soap opera effect. But but the truth is, and Marty and a lot of the writers on the show, I would say, oh, my God, I love saying this line, but dear God, she's a bitch. And Marty goes, I know someone like that. They have written all of Kitty's lines from experience of having people say these things to them. And I'm like, where... Who talks like this? What people are you hanging out with? But they're in a very different, you know, their work experience is different than my work experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do know people like that. And uh, uh, the red hair was very specific to the book. And I actually asked Sarai Walker, who wrote the book, um, why Kitty has red hair. Because at first I thought, is this based on Grace Coddington? Is this Glenda Bailey? Is this, you know, Anna Wintour sort of has the red hair? Like, what? Why? Because I didn't want Kitty to be... This isn't Devil Wears Prada, you know, this... Um, 
And she said, it's very important because I worked at a magazine once and I had a kitty in my life. And Sarai is a, is a, a, a big girl and she faced that every day and she didn't want to get in trouble by basing this character in her book on a real life person so she changed the color of her hair amazing and her hair so it became about kitty's red hair which i love i'm having fun with except except you know just we have to change my skin tone and my eyebrows every day when we're putting it on so it's a, a few hours in hair and makeup but that's okay um it's kind of it's just at the end of the day taking it all off i'm like wow because <laughs> most of my characters i've played don't wear that much makeup but it's um she's got to be perfect and she has to have this red it's sort of like a Breck commercial you know she's just always got these luxurious locks is it is it a wig or is it oh, dye? Yeah. It's a oh, wig. No. It's a wig. <laughs> like you, you don't do that every day, do you? No, no, it's a wig. Oh, it's God. a wig. Yeah. Merciful. We're all wigged on the show. Uh, Tamara Tooney, I think, has five different wigs because her character goes through a huge transformation because she's someone who's pretending she's someone she's not. Mm-hmm. She lightens her skin, her character lightens her skin, lightens her hair. She looks like a... And, and wears green eye contacts, and then she goes through this huge transformation when you find out who she really is. And Kitty is shocked. And that's even to the point where, because Julia, the, the character uh, Tamar plays, um, is Kitty's sort of, if you could call, if you could say she has a best friend, Julia placates her, but Julia hates her. Um, but Julia wears a corset and, and, holds, and, and holds everything in and is always bound up and uncomfortable. And then you get to see who she is in real life. I mean, there's a lot of transformations that happen. And, of course, Joy Nash is a natural. She has actually natural kitty hair. She's got red, gorgeous, thick hair. And she wears this mousy brown wig that then that goes through a transformation when she starts discovering who she is. And wait a minute, maybe, you know, her her whole journey through this is if I can be a size six, I'll be happy. And if I get the surgery, once I have the surgery, then I can start living my life. And this sort of intervention happens through Jennifer and mm-hmm. through Calliope House and these other people um, in the show. And they start saying, that's when you're going to be happy? Is that happiness? And you start seeing Plum realize that, wait a minute, I am happy. And what's great is if, if you ever meet Joy Nash... She is the most confident, happy, I like who I am mm-hmm. kind of girl. And that's why I think she's going to be really important for women who are struggling. Well, I can't wait to see more. But I also can't let you go with ask, ask you at least one good fight question. Do you watch? What do you oh, think of good fight? <laughs> I just, I actually just, um, I just ha- had lunch with Kush. And I just saw everybody because a uh, makeup artist um, had passed away and we had a memorial for her. So it was nice to see them all. Um so here's the truth. I'm going to be really honest. And, and Robert and Michelle know this, and, and Kush and, and Christine know it. And I just met Rose the other day, who's such a doll. Um, it's the way I felt after I left ER. I could not look at another hospital drama because it's almost painful knowing how hard it is to film those scenes. (laughs) And so I have decided I'm going to just wait for a while. The idea... So I I watched the first one because it was just on regular CBS. And it was great. And I wrote every... It was great. Um, But watching Diane 
and Luca in court killed me. I just thought, oh, dear God, I, it just took me out. So I need a few years to go by before I can handle another courtroom drama without thinking. I know now that the camera has to now cover the jury and then the prosecuting table and then the defense and then the witness and then the defense attorney. And it is such long days, and I just can't get my head out of it. So I have to wait until I'm recovered fully and then I'm going to binge watch it all because I, I, I know it's great it's fantastic yeah. so no chances of Alicia Floric anytime soon no I I don't you know the truth is I and I do miss Alicia Floric and they did ask me in the first season to come back I I feel it would have done a disservice to everyone on that show you know mm-hmm. I it's not Alicia's show anymore it's their show and I and I I would need to move forward you know, and who knows? Maybe if enough time goes by, it's like George and I, uh, George Clooney and I always used to say, "Let's let a lot of time go by, and then just have a Carol Hathaway, Doug Ross wedding. Just like we'll just do one, you know, because <laughs> enough time will have gone by." Um, I just feel like enough time has to go by for you to be able to not take the limelight away, and it's their show now, and I think they're they're carrying that torch beautifully. They are indeed. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Deborah. So fun. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We'll be talking about the amazing race with the executive producers. See you next time. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.